The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, the fourth chapter and the 28th verse. The 28th verse in the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let him that stole, or let the stealer, steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. The apostle here, in these words, continues the series of particular and special injunctions which we have seen he is giving to these Ephesian Christians. He is illustrating what he meant when he said that now because they have been born again, they must put off the old men and put on the new men. He isn't satisfied with just putting it like that as a general principle. He wants them to know that this is something that has to be dealt with in detail. And that is a a general principle that we must never lose sight of. You cannot separate doctrine and practice. The New Testament never does so. And the Apostle here is just enforcing that uh, great principle. What we believe, uh, what has happened to us, has got to be thought out, worked out, and carried out. We are not just to sit down admiring doctrine. We are to put it into practice. And if we fail to put it into practice, the doctrine is of no value to us. If ye know these things, said our Lord, happy are ye if ye do them. And there is nothing more fatal than to leave out either the doctrine or the practice. The one is as bad as the other. The New Testament method is doctrine plus practice. Doctrine leading to practice. Practice proving the doctrine. Well, now, then, the apostle, I say, is illustrating all that, and he takes up a number of things. We've already considered the first, which was that we should put away lying. And then last Sunday, we were dealing with the injunction, be ye angry and sin not. And now he comes to this question of stealing. And, of course, we notice that in every one of these instances, the apostle is uh, selecting things which really are of vital and pivotal importance. There are many statements in the New Testament to the effect that people who habitually continue to practice certain things are simply not Christians. Now, let me show you this same Apostle Paul, who is sometimes described as the Apostle of Faith, saying a thing like that. Listen, know ye not, he says, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's his list in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. And you notice that in the list there came this word about thieves. So again, you see, he's reminding us 
that if a man persists in stealing, being guilty of thieving, he is thereby proving that he is not a Christian. You notice what I say, that he persists in that. If there is no change in him in that respect. He doesn't say that a Christian may not fall to temptation once, or perhaps more than once, but what he does say, what the New Testament says everywhere, is that a man who persists in that is thereby proclaiming whatever he may claim as doctrine, that he is not a Christian. I needn't surely again emphasize the fact that the mere fact that a man doesn't steal doesn't prove that he's a Christian. That would be foolish. But what he does say is that persistence in stealing or any one of these things is indicative of the fact that a man has really not been born again. Very well. Now then, let us look at this. You notice that he again adopts the same method. First of all, he tells us what not to do. Then he tells us what we ought to do. And then he gives us the reason for not doing the one and for doing the other. Let him that stole steal no more. There's the negative. Let him rather labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. That's the positive. The reason for it all, that he may have to give him that needeth. Very well. As we look at this important injunction, there are surely certain things that stand out at once as messages, as principles, as teaching. And the first is this one. We all ought again to rejoice at this great and glorious and wonderful gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and it can save men from any kind of sin. That's what makes these lists that we are given here and there in the scriptures so wonderful. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not for good people. It's for sinners. It was while we were yet sinners and without strength Christ died for us. It is for people who are guilty of all those terrible, horrible things I've just been reading to you in that list in 1 Corinthians 6. It is for such that Christ has died. Yes, for thieves and robbers, for those who were stealers. That is, I say, the central glory of the gospel, that there is nothing beyond its power, nothing beyond its scope. There is no man who is hopeless when he is face to face with the gospel. There is no particular sin that excludes a man in that way. This gospel, I say, is a power. And in going through these different items that the apostle gives us here, we ought to be reminded of that from Sunday to Sunday. That given this power entering into a man's life, whatever it was that held him captive, he can be set free. There's our first proposition, and it's one, I say, in which we should rejoice. But then I come to a second one, which is sometimes misunderstood, but which is clearly of very central importance. The gospel, I say, saves from all kinds of sins, yes. But it is important that we should observe the way in which it does so. Now, here we have an injunction that has often surprised many people. They say, are you telling us that the apostle really has to tell a number of Christian people that they must give up stealing. 
I thought, says someone, that you've been emphasizing for a number of Sundays that these people were regenerate, that they've been born again, that they've been created after God in this new pattern, that the, the image of God has been restored upon them. And now are you telling us that the apostle has to say to those self-same people, let the stealer steal no more. Well, that is precisely what the apostle does say. And it is something at which we should not be surprised. If we are surprised, it is undoubtedly due to the fact that we are wrong in our view of the doctrine of regeneration, the new birth, and as to what that means. And I believe there is a good deal of misunderstanding about this. Take, for instance, that great statement in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, that's often misinterpreted to mean this. That when a man is uh, regenerate, when he is in Christ and becomes a new creature, that everything that was true about him before uh, is simply gone. None of that remains whatsoever. And he's an entirely new man in every detail and in every single respect. Well, now, obviously, that is entirely wrong. That's a complete misinterpretation of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Because if that were true, the apostle would never have had to write to these people and to tell them to put away lying and uh, to be angry without sinning and to stop stealing and these various other things that we are considering in detail. In other words, we must never interpret regeneration in a kind of magical sense. That's entirely wrong. Of course, the world does that. It says, you people, you claim that as Christians you're born again, and therefore you ought to be absolutely perfect. And if therefore they find a Christian falling to sin, they say, so much for your Christianity. I thought it delivered a man from all this and made him perfect at once. But it doesn't promise that. It doesn't say that. This is Christianity. Well, now then, how do we explain this? How do we expound it? How do we reconcile these various statements? And this is important not only in this country, it is even more important in a sense on the foreign mission field, where people are suddenly saved out of heathendom and all that is true of it. And if this doctrine of regeneration is misinterpreted, it is bound to become a stumbling block for the faith of many inside the church and many who are seeking outside. So the answer is this, that sometimes in regeneration, a man is delivered completely from certain particular sins without making any effort at all. But that isn't a universal rule. A man can be equally, truly regenerate and still need this instruction and still find a certain element of struggle in his life. Now, we don't understand this. It is something within the sovereignty of God. But what we are absolutely certain of is this, that in regeneration we are not delivered from all our sins and rendered immune to every conceivable temptation. That is patently not true. The teaching proves it, experience proves it.
But God in his infinite wisdom implies different methods in different cases. I remember very well two men who were members of the same church, both of whom had been subject to drunkenness in their pre-conversion days. There they were, they had the same sin. They gave way to drink and to their temptation and were drunkards. The two men listening to the gospel were converted, saved, regenerated. But it was most interesting to notice the difference in their experience. In the case of the one man, the very taste for drink was taken away like that. He literally never had another second's trouble with it. But the second man, who equally had given it up and was no longer a slave to it and no longer subject to it in any sense, he didn't have the experience of having it taken right out like that. He knew what it was to struggle. He knew what it was to feel a terrible temptation at times. But the two men were equally regenerate. And it's very important that we should remember that. So that it comes to pass that uh, this kind of teaching is necessary. We are born as babes in Christ. And we don't know everything at once. And we don't see everything clearly at once. We need to instruction. We need to be taught. That's what these letters were written for. And we have to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a most interesting and fascinating thing, this. We all must know something about it in experience. How at first, though as it were we'd seen everything in a new way, we hadn't seen particular things in the new way. We really had undergone this mighty transformation and yet it hadn't occurred to us that certain things would have to be dealt with. We had to be taught about that. We may have gradually realized it. And unless you and I are becoming more sensitive in this respect from year to year, it means we're not growing and there's something wrong with us. At first one sees the big central things then one has to learn about these other things. Now, that was the position of these people in Ephesus. There was nothing that was more characteristic of heathendom than this stealing. It is always, as I'm going to show you, one of the leading characteristics of a godless and irreligious society. And there it was. They'd been steeped in it, they'd been brought up in it. And it had become such a matter of habit and of custom and of practice that at first they didn't realize that there was anything wrong and they need to be, needed to be enlightened and instructed in the way that the apostle is here instructing. Now I say that this is as true today as it was then. The babe in Christ doesn't see everything. He needs and he is given particular and detailed instruction. Occasionally, as I say, the thing is taken right away like that. But very often, indeed, I would say generally, it isn't. But the man is given the new attitude, the new outlook, and all the rest of it. And so he is enabled to overcome it. And, of course, being born again, there is this new principle in him. And the Holy Spirit is in him. He's got a new power in him. So that with the instruction and the power, he is enabled to deal with it. Now that is the New Testament method of sanctification. Very well, let me go on to the third principle, which is this. Why must uh, stealing be forsaken? Why does the apostle say, let the stealer steal 
no more. Now, this is a, a very important subject, I think you'll all agree, and as a very urgent practical reference, alas. The newspapers are telling us about this appalling increase in petty theft and robbery and pilfering and all the rest. It's becoming increasingly an urgent problem in a sociological sense in this country. So let's look at it. What does stealing mean? Well, obviously, the apostle was thinking primarily of actual laying hold of something that doesn't belong to you with your hands. He puts an emphasis upon the hands. That was the commonest form of stealing then, as it is still one of the commonest forms of stealing. But, you know, it doesn't stop at that. Stealing doesn't always apply to things in the material realm. Stealing really means taking possession of and using as your own something that does not belong to you. Appropriating something that isn't yours to serve your own ends and your own gratification. So you see, it applies to many things besides actual material things. We can steal money. Yes, but we can steal time also. We can steal, indeed, almost anything. We can steal thoughts. We can steal ideas. Plagiarism. That is what plagiarism is, isn't it? That you take another man's ideas and give them out as your own. You may write an article, but it's what you've got from somebody else and you don't acknowledge it. You may preach another man's sermon, and that's theft, that's robbery, that's stealing. You give it out as your ideas, but they're not your ideas. Now, that's stealing. To take possession of anything that belongs to another and that isn't really yours, and to possess it and to regard it as yours and to give the impression that it is yours is stealing. Now, I, I'm very concerned about this because... Let's be frank in together this morning. These things are very important. I sometimes am given a real shock in this way. I receive a letter from the secretary of a Christian union. A Christian union, perhaps, if you like, in a business firm. Or in the civil service. Or in any such organization. A bank or something like that. And to my utter amazement and astonishment, the invitation to me to speak at the meeting of the Christians belonging to the Christian Union in that firm or business is written on the official notepaper of the bank or the civil service or the firm. Now, I call that stealing. That is definitely stealing. Christian people have no right to use official notepaper to serve their own personal private ends and objects, even though it may be a Christian union. Or take this question of time, which I've indicated. Now, let me give you another illustration of stealing. Lest we may think the apostle was just writing to a handful of pagans, and that we, never having been pagans in this sense, don't need this exhortation. Take this question of time. I've often put it like this that if you or I happen to be paid by a firm to do a given piece of work, for me to spend a part of that time in trying to evangelize a fellow worker is stealing. 
I have no right to use my employer's time even to evangelize another soul that is stealing. It isn't my time. I am paid money to use that time in doing what that firm has told me to do. And though it may be a very good object, though it may be the best of all, to tell another soul about Christ and salvation, I have no right to do it in the time that does not belong to me, but is my employer's time. So you see the exhortation to stop stealing as a very wide and a very practical relevance. And therefore we must be careful to take it in this large way. Anything that belongs to another or to the state must not be appropriated by us and used for our own personal ends and objects, howsoever exalted they may be. But then remember that in stealing, this is also included. Stealing also includes a failure to pay to another that which is his due. To keep back from another that which is his due. Whether you keep it back from the state in the form of customs or uh, income tax or whatever else it is, it is stealing. If it belongs by law and by right to another, you and I, if we withhold it, are guilty of stealing. So that you see, not to give that which we should give is stealing, as well as actually appropriating that which does not belong to us. Well now then, this is the exhortation, let the stealer steal no more. And let's look at it together. Let's analyze this horrible thing. There is nothing perhaps that shows what a despicable thing a sin is and what a degrading thing it is more than stealing. And the way to overcome sin according to the New Testament is to see it for what it is and to despise it and to hate it and to say that's impossible for a man who is a Christian. Well, let's analyze it. What does it show us? Isn't there something which is inherently and essentially shameful about stealing? The stealth, the concealment, the furtiveness, watching for your opportunity when you're not being watched, doing it after dark, doing it when everybody's... Oh, isn't there something utterly despicable about it? There is an inherent and an essential shame and treachery about this very act of stealing. All that's involved in it, all that is indicated by it, I say, is full of this horrible characteristic. And then another element. Stealing always involves the misuse of an ability which is given to us. The apostle is thinking, I say, in terms of hens. Look at that man. He sees something that he covets and that he wants. It belongs to another. And he uses the hens that God has given him to lay hold upon it and to possess it. What a misuse of these wonderful instruments. The hens given us by God. Amazing instruments. I've often said that the mere ability to do that is a thing that amazes me and astounds me. What wonderful instruments our hands are, and yet look the use to which the thief puts them. But it doesn't apply only to one's hands, it applies in all these other respects that I've been outlining. 
Look at the way in which thieves misuse the power of thought, the power of reason, the power of logic, the power to foretell and to plan. Look at the sheer ingenuity, the mastery from the standpoint of a brain that goes into a lot of illicit trade and business and all that is involved in this great comprehensive term, thieving. The way people, the cuteness, the ability they display in evading and avoiding and in getting hold of. What a prostitution of some of the mightiest, noblest gifts that God has given to men. And then think of the perverted pleasure that the thief obtains in this misusing of his gifts. Fancy a man actually thinking that he's been clever when he steals. That's cleverness. That's ability. You see, everything about it is degrading, isn't it? A man congratulates himself. How smart he's been, how clever he's been. Oh, what a perversion. Is that the standard of ability? Is that the way in which we measure capacity? It's all an utter insult to human nature and to the most wonderful things that God has given to us as men that a man could pride himself on having done such a thing and on his ability to do it. Is there anything more reprehensible? But for me to come to matters that are yet more important, what is really at the back of steel? And the answer is, of course, selfishness. It's just, again, one of those central manifestations of self. The desire to have, yes, that I may have, that I may possess. I'm just thinking of myself. I want to think. It's just one of these horrible, foul manifestations of self showing itself in this matter of desire. Desire to have and to possess and to hold that it may build me up in various ways. That's really at the root of it. But uh, to emphasize again something that needs to be emphasized so much today, stealing is really, is it not, the desire to have without effort. That's the peculiar thing about it, isn't it? It is the self and the desire that self may possess and have, but yes, there is this additional factor. It is the desire to have without putting any effort into it, without working for it, without laboring for it, as the Apostle puts it here. So that ultimately the trouble with the thief, the stealer, is that he dislikes work. He dislikes honest labor. He's the sort of man who really despises honest work and labor... His idea is, of course, to have the maximum and do the minimum. He isn't particular as to how he does it, uh, how he gets it, as long as he gets it. He exalts possessing into the supreme position. And he eventually comes to this point. He thinks that a man who works like a slave and sweats and half kills himself in order to get this amount of possession, if it can be obtained by just taking it from somebody else, he thinks that first man's a fool. And he is rather proud of himself as a consequence. He hasn't half killed himself. His phrase is, isn't it, is easy money. So simple. 
Why do all that when it can be obtained like this? You see, he's displaying uh, his utter degradation. And it doesn't matter in what shape or form it's done, that is always uh, what it is. And surely we are witnessing something of this mentality at this present time. This whole modern philosophy which rather despises work, which puts pleasure and enjoyment in the supreme position, and which regards work as just a nuisance, something that's essential in order that I may have money to enjoy myself. Now the end of that logic is, well, to get the money and the enjoyment without the work. The moment you begin to regard work as something degrading, you're on the slippery slope. The moment you fail to see the dignity of work and the essential rightness of work. The moment you begin to think in terms of having rather than truly and honestly obtaining. I say you're beginning to open the door that will lead to some form of dishonesty. Possession should never be in the supreme position. The mere having, the mere gaining, the mere enjoying is never to be the supreme thing. A society, a country, a world which begins to despise labor and effort is proclaiming that it is godless. Any failure, I say, to realize the dignity of work uh, proclaims the same thing. The whole notion of obtaining the maximum and giving or doing the minimum is utterly irreligious. It is profoundly unchristian. And without my going any further this morning, I think you'll all agree that it is something that is afflicting every stratum of society in this country today. This is not a political question. This is a spiritual question. There are drones and parasites in every class of society. And I care not what class it is. Any man who thinks simply in terms of what he may have, that he may enjoy it with the minimum of effort, is a drone, he's a parasite. He's a denier of the very essence of the Christian teaching. Very well. It's a spiritual problem and not a political one. The next thing that this proclaims to us is that the outlook of this person is this, that he has a feeling that he has a right to anything that he likes or desires. Obviously, that must be his thinking. There is that thing. He doesn't stop to ask if it's his or not or somebody else's. All he says is, now I like that, I wish I had that. And I'd be very happy if I did have it. I could do wonderful things with it. Therefore, I take it. That's the reasoning, that's the mentality. In other words, it brings me to my next point, which is that it shows a complete and entire lack of respect for others and their possessions. And that is the most horrible thing of all, perhaps, about thieving and robbery. It's a lack of respect for the other. I'm only thinking of myself and what's good for me and what I want and what I can enjoy. If I began to think of the same thing about the other men, I'd never take that thing of his because I'd say, well, he likes it also and he wants it, but I exclude him. I annihilate his personality. I violate his personality. I alone matter. Nobody else counts. That's the philosophy at the back of it. 
And you see why the apostle was pressing it so much upon these Ephesians. That kind of outlook makes fellowship impossible. And he's writing to members of churches. He's just been telling them that they're all together members of the body of Christ. And that the body is one. But how can there be unity and fellowship? If each man is appropriating the possession of another. And each man is out for himself. The hand says I'm not interested in feet. I take everything I can from it. That's chaos. That's monstrosity. There is no fellowship possible where there isn't trust. Therefore, says the apostle, let the stealer steal no more. You see, all this is lawlessness. It's anarchy. It's every man out for himself. And nobody thinking about anybody at all but himself. That is why the apostle says, let him that stole steal no more. Very well, there it is on the negative. Let's look at the positive. How should the Christian then regard and deal with this whole problem and temptation to steal? Again, I have to point out that the apostle doesn't just say pray about it. Ask God to take it out of your life. He doesn't say that. But you know the teaching which says that that's how you deal with every sin. Pray about it. Ask God to take it out of your life. And he'll do it for you. Don't you do anything. Let him do it all. He'll do it all. Just look to him. He'll take it out of your life if you ask him. The apostle doesn't say that. You don't just pray and then wait to be delivered. No, no. It's a positive injunction. Stop doing it, says Paul. Let him that stole steal no more. Stop doing it. How do you do that? Well, you realize all I've been trying to say about it. You analyze the thing. You pull it up and look at it and say, is this it? Am I guilty of that? It's impossible. You do all that, but then you don't stop at that. You then make your positive approach to it. And what is the positive approach? Well, says the apostle, you've got to look at this thing in an entirely new manner. I must stop stealing. Very well, but he doesn't just leave me in the negative. He says, no, not only that, rather, but rather, here it is, let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. Oh, this is a great word, this. Rather let him labor, he says. Labor, working. Now, the word labor is a very strong word. It means this. It means working to the point of fatigue. That's his word. Not just working. No, no, you must labor, he says. And here again I want to emphasize this great Christian principle of the dignity of work, the dignity of toil and labor, the dignity of producing something. Do you know, my friends, it's only Christianity that teaches a thing like this. Did you notice how Paul, in saying his farewell to the elders of the church at Ephesus, it's most interesting. You see, he'd actually said all this when he was saying farewell to the elders of this church at Ephesus. Remember his words. He says, Yea, you yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, he had been giving them an example and a pattern of all this. 
Christianity has always stood for the dignity of work, for the dignity of labor. I can prove this to you historically. Heathendom is always characterized by slackness and indolence and laziness. And godlessness is. As this country becomes more and more godless and irreligious, it becomes more and more lazy. In every stratum of society, I say again, it always happens. But on the other hand, any revival of true religion exalts the dignity of work. Because it brings a man to see that God has given him his body and he's meant to use it. And that he's meant to use and to employ his faculties. Man was not made just to sit back and to enjoy himself. And to get it all for nothing. That's enervating. That's insulting. It doesn't develop a man's faculties and powers. But the moment you see yourself as a Christian, as a man made in the image of God, you want to use your faculties. And so what you find historically is this. That the Elizabethan period, which stands out as a great era in the history of this country, when this country began to lay down the basis of her great prosperity and success, it was a period that followed the Protestant Reformation. Of course. The moment these people were awakened to the truth of the gospel and saw themselves under God, they began to work. The Puritan Reformation led to the same thing still more strikingly. Don't forget that. However much we were advanced by the Elizabethan period, we were advanced much more in the Cromwellian period. And what made that period really great was again the self-same thing, this dignity of work. Some people have been troubled by this. They're troubled by the fact that the Quakers and people like that have become very wealthy people. It's no problem at all. The explanation is this. These men having been converted, first of all they see how wrong sin is, and they don't squander their money on useless trifles. They stop that. But then they've got this positive principle, the dignity of work. So they're diligent and they work. They don't set out with this mentality. Well, now how can I shorten my day, shorten my hours, do as little as I can and get as much as I can? No, no, they enjoy the work. They're creating something. They're making something. They're doing something. They're laboring. And of course, it's quite inevitable. They're bound to make money. They're bound to become wealthy. If you work hard and don't squander your money, you're bound to accumulate wealth. You can't, ev- you can't avoid it. You can't evade it. And that is the real explanation of this position. Well, now then, the apostle tells us to work and to labor with our hands. And it may be, my friends, that you and I as Christians in a generation such as this, Uh, perhaps to teach people this above everything else and so testify to Christ and to his grace. We are to show that the supreme object in our lives is not enjoyment and pleasure, is not to have a life of ease, and then to set up committees to know how to employ our leisure time, the problem of how to handle the leisure hours. No, no, we must be doing something. We must be working, we must be laboring, and doing it with all our might. Indulging in a little honest sweat and knowing what it is to go to bed tired out. And so feeling that you've lived as a man and not as a sluggard, not as a parasite,
battering and building yourself up on somebody else's capital and taking of the sustenance and the strength of another. Laboring, says the apostle, working with your own hands that which is good. Isn't it amazing to notice how slow we always are to learn the great lessons of life and of history? Surely we all have observed, haven't we, that it's rather a dangerous thing for people to inherit wealth. Now I'm not saying it need always go wrong, but I am saying that it's always dangerous. I'm rather sorry for young people who inherit a lot of wealth. They're in a very dangerous position. It's not surprising that they often go wrong. How often has it happened that a father has worked hard and labored and sweated, as Paul tells us, and he's built up a great business, left a great fortune? His son comes along, inherits it all, and squanders it all. Poor boy, I'm sorry for him. You see, he received all that wealth without working for it, without laboring for it. He's got a wrong attitude towards life and living. And it's not surprising that he misuses it. It's a dangerous thing to have wealth and possessions without having earned them in some shape or form. And a society that goes in for this kind of thing, I say, is asking for ruin. Labor working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. In other words, the next step is this, the next principle is that of stewardship. Why do I possess things? What's the value of possessions? Oh, not like the stealer, the thief looks at it. Not merely for myself and what I may get out of it. No, no, I'm a steward. I just hold these things. They're not really mine. They're not an end and an object in themselves. They were never designed for personal gratification only. I just hold them for the giver, because God is the giver of every good and every perfect gift. And I am appointed by him to be the guardian, the custodian, the steward. They're not mine. I simply have them for the time being. And that leads me to the final step, which is this. Concern for others and their need. Work, labor, working with your own hands, says the apostle. The thing which is good, in order that you may have to give to him that needeth. Work, because work's a good thing. If you make money at it, well then hold it as a custodian and give to those who are in need in any shape or form or any good that you can do. It is more blessed to give than to receive, says the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of his sayings that is not recorded in the Gospels. But the apostle had heard it, he'd been told it. He says, do you remember how the Lord Jesus said that it is more blessed to give than to receive? Well, be like that, says Paul. And indeed, for me to close, that is really what he's saying in this exhortation. He is simply telling us to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. What was he like? Well, listen. The apostle tells us in writing to the Philippians in chapter 2. Look not every man on his own things, 
but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He was so rich, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient even unto the death of the cross. That's it, says the apostle. Ye know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, how that though he was rich, For our sakes, he became poor. He not only didn't steal that which didn't belong to him, he didn't even hold on to that which was his, the richness of Christ, the everlasting, how he was so rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor. And he lived in this world in this way. He hadn't a house of his own, he hadn't a home of his own. The Son of Man, he says, hath not whereon to lay his head. We read that every man went into his own home, his own house. Jesus went to the Mount of Olivet. Ye know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was so rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. What a different realm that is from the realm of stealing. Yes, but that's the difference between Christianity and paganism. Paganism, godlessness in religion, is every man out for himself, every man trying to get as much as he can for nothing that he may enjoy it. Christianity. Consideration of others. Self-denial. Self-abnegation. Self-abasement. Seeing the needs of others and giving. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, moral teaching simply stops at saying, don't steal. Don't steal. Don't touch it. That's morality. But it stops there. And oh, what a poor thing morality is. This is Christianity. Labor, working with your own hands that which is good, that you may have to give to others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Giving others, seeing need, sacrificing. It's the exact antithesis. Very well then, because we are new men, let us put off the old men. Let us put on the new men. Let us walk in the footsteps of our blessed Lord and Master, who said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. 
You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.